I, I want to be held accountable for what I'm doing. You know, this may sound like an, an exaggeration, but it was like the 9-11 of my career and certainly of making kombucha. Jesus is smart. This idea of income inequality, that always strikes me as a very, it's a deceptive term, income inequality. Well, let's flip it around. It comes from outcome inequality. In five, four, three, two. Hello, welcome back to Grubstakers, the podcast about billionaires. My name is Sean P. McCarthy, and I'm joined here by... Steve Jeffries. Andy Palmer. And so this week, we're going to talk a bit about Ikea, and more specifically, we're going to talk about the... Uh, Ikea? <laughs> the founder of Ikea, uh, Ingvar Kamprat, who's uh, now deceased, but uh, before he died in 2018. Before he died, Forbes gave him a net worth of about... 23 billion dollars we count uh, people who died uh after we started this podcast <laughs> i think at his zenith he was worth about 57 billion right oh shit he his, was the fourth richest person in the world for for a minute wow. his yeah his net worth yo-yoed but also ikea is owned by a very complicated tax structure that is currently being investigated by the european union for tax evasion would you so, say that his net worth was kind of built up and then it collapsed and then it <laughs> It was replaced. Right. Yeah, Forbes uh, tried to climb up his net worth and pull out some drawers and <laughs> fall on top of them. And uh, Yeah, so uh, he passed away in 2018, but his children are all billionaires. He has four children. But I guess when we talk about Ikea, what I want to start with is the fact that I think most people listening to this, unless they've like done serious research on Ikea have the general sense that IKEA is a more humane, more environmental, more sustainable, more Swedish, more social democratic company than a lot of US multinationals you run into. They're the, the actual, uh, adorkable chain. Yes. The actual story is IKEA is one of the most evil companies on earth presently. I mean, it'd be hard to rank them, but when you go through the history of IKEA, you start with uh, the founder who was a Nazi who uh, funded rat lines to take Nazi war criminals out of uh, Europe uh, after the war, which we'll get to. Uh, you start with that. Uh, then you go through uh, lots of instances of slave labor all the way up to the present where they are currently suspected of using a Uyghur Muslim slave labor in China uh, to source their cotton. Uh, and we'll get to that. But then also just the actual environmental destruction of the company where they are the third largest consumer of wood in the entire world. They use about 1% of the world's wood supply. And how do you think they get it so cheap? Illegal logging and clear cutting. Mm -hmm. I would say that they are also responsible for about, in the countries that they operate, they're responsible for a breakup rate of about three per capita <laughs> with We're, with a, an, uh, a nearly relationship-ending uh, argument rate of about eight per capita. <laughs> So we're recording from Grubstakers South, mm -hmm. currently yes, yes. in Flatbush, Brooklyn, and approximately 80% of the furniture in this unit is IKEA mm -hmm. uh, that has been owned by all of the hosts. <laughs> uh, some of it has been passed on from host to host. Well, that's the thing is, you know, IKEA furniture, it's... They, they do kind of a perverse thing where they argue that, uh, hey, you know, we're, we're using less wood and lighter materials, so that's more environmentally friendly than a piece of furniture that uses more wood. But it's like, well, the end result is it's cheaper. You throw it out er earlier and uh, you replace it. So in the long run, 
I mean, there's a so we we watched this documentary that's on Netflix that I do recommend. It, the documentary series is called Broken. The episode is called Deadly Dressers, um, and it's mostly about IKEA. And they talk about how up until the 1980s and 90 uh, up until the 1980s, most Americans would buy furniture and keep it for their entire lives. And IKEA has really revolutionized the world in that, um, you know people will just throw their Ikea shit out and buy new Ikea shit every time they move, which if you're in New York happens like every twice a year. Yeah. It's, oh, there's usually a dresser just kind of strewn about on, outside of our building. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Ikea is uh, the primary supplier of uh, sidewalk bookshelves. That said, I, 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 I'm actually going to start a conspiracy theory, which is um, that Ikea... Uh, spread the exaggerated threat of um, sidewalk furniture being full of bed bugs <laughs> so that no one would take in a perfectly good uh, dresser that someone just didn't want to pay someone to carry uh, yeah, it's like the a new neighborhood I don't know if we have audio of it but there's a 2002 ad by Ikea that, um, that somebody throws a lamp out and has a sad music going and then a Swedish actor comes in and says don't feel bad for the lamp Right. This is because com- you can just get another one. <laughs> Basically, it's a commercial directed by Spike Jones. One of the most uh, most famous IKEA commercials is in 2002, and the message is: Don't feel bad about throwing out your lamp. You're crazy for feeling bad about that. It was actually a um, uh, compromise by getting Spike Jones. It was a compromise from the original idea, which was a commercial that was directed by Spike Jones and written by Charlie Kaufman, but it had way too many masturbation scenes. <laughs> so they had to throw out Charlie Kaufman. Uh, we should just skip to the end. Cause a uh, lady carrying a lamp, uh, a depressed man laying in bed, masturbating. Cause he can't finish his, uh, script. Okay. Now it's a man who's part man, part ape who can't control his own masturbation. Well, so they put this lamp out on the curb and it's getting rained on and the perspective of the camera is trying to make you sympathize with the lamp and feel bad that they just threw out this innocent lamp. Now there's a kindly Swedish man masturbating. Oh yeah, it's a re- Wait, the lamp's light goes off outside, mm-hmm. um, which, you know, that doesn't happen. Many of you feel bad for this lamp. That is because you're crazy. It has no feeling. And the new one is much better. <laughs> and then it has a fake, uh, uh, fake, I don't know, teutonization where it says unboring with umlauts on the O. Many of you feel bad for the refugees our founders political party kept out of Sweden and got sent to Auschwitz. That's because you're crazy. <laughs> Jews don't have feelings. But yes, yeah, so that is uh, the commercial where they say... They are a ruthless international <laughs> clique that will destroy all of the uh, true racial, racially pure people. <laughs> so, like, uh, that's the commercial, uh, 2002, where they're, uh, where they're telling you, hey, don't feel bad about throwing your fucking lamp out. Uh, you're crazy if you feel bad about this. It doesn't have feelings. And of course, what happens is these things end up in landfills, and then, you know, people buying new stuff ends up consuming even more wood than if you just kept the, th- uh, the original product. But then IKEA has rebranded as an environmental 
uh, company. So they re-released this ad in 2018, which is a sequel where some little girl comes and takes the lamp that has been rained on on the street and brings it to her family's house, and then she makes shadow puppets in front of the lamp, and then that and same promptly a- electrocuted. It's <laughs> 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 just like there's dressers falling on the other kids in the background. <laughs> The surrealist. The, the, the dresser falls on a kid, and then the Swedish actor's like, don't feel bad about the kid. <laughs> crazy. Get a new one. It's much better. <laughs> Get a new toddler. you crazy. Well, maybe we could just play the voiceover of the guy at the end of the 2018 Okay, here's uh, John Malkovich masturbating. John Cusack is masturbating inside John Malkovich. They've just finished the tasteful rape scene. Many of you feel happy for this lamp. That's not crazy. Reusing things is much better. Shut the fuck up. <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> and then they went with the new... Um, so the last one, it was like unboring, and now it just says the beautiful possibilities, <laughs> which is endemic of, you know, 2010 smarm. Well, something we will get to is that IKEA, um, a a former executive of IKEA, wrote a tell-all book in 2009 called The Truth of IKEA, The Truth About IKEA, and he makes the allegation, very credible uh, in my opinion, that IKEA has basically bought off Greenpeace and some of these other NGOs to get a clean environmental record, and he says that if you actually add it up, IKEA is a powerful enough company that they could enforce discipline in their supply chain. They could say, hey, no illegal clear-cutting, no slave labor, but instead, it is cheaper for them to use illegal clear-cutting, use slave labor, and then pay off these NGOs to launder their reputation because paying off the NGOs is also charitable uh, tax deductible. Mm-hmm. It's also, they get they make money on both ends where they do the cut rate uh, supplier thing, and then they save money on their tax bill by donating to nonprofits. Also, thanks to the Patreon subscribers, we're now uh, ranked number one in ethics and podcasting. <laughs> But it is like, so, you know, I, I read that... Uh, Responsibly source drops. I read the executive make the allegation that they paid off Greenpeace, which I guess ABC News, when they did a write-up, had to withdraw this claim because they said there's there's not actually evidence of this particular claim. And then I Googled IKEA Greenpeace. All of the Greenpeace stuff on IKEA is just press releases for IKEA, where it's like, <laughs> IKEA will commit to tonal sustainable light bulbs by 2020. <laughs> IKEA, fully sustainable wood sourcing by 2020. And, you know, this is Greenpeace doing press releases for a company that is clear-cutting Romania, Russia, China, among others. Yeah, in the Broken documentary, um, they're like, IKEA uh, announced that they were committing to sustainability by 2020. And then the explanation of their sustainability was one of those clear, like, uh, corporate doublespeak things that, you know, we've seen a dozen times before in covering companies on this show, where it's just like, they will do a slightly better job of checking who is doing their logging mm-hmm. yeah like the the phrase they use was forest positive yeah <laughs> and i was like okay so that must mean like they're gonna plant more trees than they cut down or something like yeah. that but no it's much more vague yeah there's no there's no uh physical metric that you would expect in a real plan right so yeah and the documentary broke uh broken the deadly dressers episode it goes through they um they follow this guy from a romanian organization called agent green and uh him and his uh compatriots they go around filming illegal logging in romania and that guy he seemed cool as hell and he is uh 100 within the next 10 years if he's not already going to be uh 
in an unmarked grave <laughs> somewhere in the clear-cut Romanian forest. But so they talk about the uh, Carpathian Mountains in Romania and the forests there are some of the last like real old growth forests in Europe. You know, because so much of this has been just clear cut by multinationals. Yeah, and, I wasn't uh, aware that there were still forests in Europe. <laughs> no, um, if you if you ever check out this documentary, I think you'll agree that it's just like Romania is like stunning. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. I really yeah. want to visit now. Yeah, all the drone shots are just gorgeous, beautiful forests, and then they'll go to the areas that the multinationals have been allowed to log in, and it's just gone. But I will say also that the uh, footage of the trees that were cut down that did look like really good quality wood <laughs> well that's the thing is you know um well so romania of course is a communist dictatorship um until uh boo <laughs> Uh, which which had its problems, but they didn't open up uh, the forests to multinational logging companies. And then what we've seen again and again with all these former Eastern European communist regimes when they fall, Yay. Uh, organized crime takes over state Yay. resources and then takes bribes to sell them off to mostly Western multinationals who destroy them. Yeah, one of the one of the great PR coups of uh, the last uh, few decades is when problems in former communist countries are characterized as problems of the former communist regime mm -hmm. and not the brutal, um, just brutal neoliberalization of uh, what was essentially forced by the West into being a fa uh, series of failed states. Mm -hmm. Can I talk about the? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, and then Steve found uh, some interesting stuff about IKEA's involvement with bribery to various factions in Romania. Yeah, so in the 80s in Romania, there's a group of secret police that was just called the Securitat, and IKEA actually got into a bit of a scheme with them in order where they would be, they agreed to be overcharged by these suppliers in Rom in Romania, of these Romanian suppliers of uh, finished um, furniture, like finished wood to be packaged into its like collapsible, just you, you build it kits. Mm-hmm. And they were overbilled uh, at the end of the whole process. This went from 1983 to 1988 or so. The, the overbilling amounted to about 13 million U.S. dollars. And it basically, it the 13 million, what they would do is they would voluntarily be overcharged. And then the overcharged amount over and above what they, like, in actuality agreed to as their real cost mm -hmm. uh, would be sent to overseas banking accounts where of owned by the security state of Romania, of the, the communist regime in Romania mm. to eventually accrue some interest. And then they would use that interest to pay down their foreign denominated debts of, of the Romanian state, the state that's involved in uh, a genocide. And <laughs> boom. Wait, was this post-Soviet then? No, this was during oh, during, during okay. the, the communist regime in the mid okay. early to mid-80s. Okay. Right. And they would use that money to pay down their foreign-denominated debts. And, uh, cheap. Yeah, yeah. Um, thereby avoiding like the hyperinflations and stuff like that because they were able to pay down those debts. And... You think they would I, have been able to get a cheaper genocide though, working with IKEA? <laughs> <laughs> they made these. They would make these payments. Uh, well, anyway, the Guardian. The Guardian reported on this first, and they found like old notes from what the what uh, researchers had recovered from the the um, 
the secret police of Romania's records because they kept meticulous notes on everything. And no they, words, just pictures. Like <laughs> <laughs> it showed these payments going back and forth between IKEA and these corrupt suppliers, like every month. And it was just like hundreds of thousands worth of Swedish crowns or U.S. dollars going forth. So the the Romanian notes were like a picture of um, a, a, a dissident being shot with a check mark, and then um, uh, a, a supporter of the government being shot with an X through it. <laughs> yeah. And so, anyways, like, IKEA was eventually paid back the principal balance of what was, functionally speaking, this loan that they gave. This, like, very cheap loan they gave to the Romanian government. Um, it worked for them. They got relatively cheap goods uh, for a, you know, somewhat generous loan to the Romanian state. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But, yeah, functional bribery. Yes, Absolutely. And interestingly and enough, money laundering. around this time in the 80s, IKEA keeps their costs down by uh, using slave labor, political and other prisoners in the East German communist regime, where they source uh, from there, uh, where, you know, various prisoners are, of course, turned into forced laborers, including political prisoners um, throughout the 80s. And uh, apparently they did the same thing with uh, uh, the Cuban uh, government, Castro's government in the 1980s where they would uh, get all these materials sourced by forced prisoner labor. Um, so, yes, uh, that's just one way that they were able to keep their costs down in the 80s. And then, you know, like this bribery program that Steve goes Plus through... you can't even understand the directions. <laughs> <laughs> this bribery program that Steve goes to, well, of course, you know, when the uh, communist government th- in Romania falls and uh, it's basically taken over by organized crime and people selling off these resources, well, IKEA is in the prime position to have the contacts to be able to get the best access to the best uh, wood. Because, of course, you know, when when it is regulated uh, as to how you're going to cut down forests, generally the, uh, let's say, best pieces of wood are very old trees that they want to leave up, whereas they're saying, hey, you should cut down the sickly trees because mm-hmm. then you could plant something new that will grow better in its place. Whereas, you know, the illegal... <laughs> illegal loggers or whoever are just going to ignore that and say, no, I want to cut down this, you know, uh, hundred year old tree or however old it might be, because this is like the much better piece of wood, even if it is illegal logging. And Ikea is saying, hey, we don't give a shit. We can just say it's the contractor, not us. You know, this is we were always they always have these same fucking PR statements about, uh, oh, we're investigating our contractors. And if necessary, we will remove them from our supply chain and violations are found. And it's it's just bullshit. They're like, they need the absolute best wood to grind down into particle board. The um, so the uh, the executive I mentioned and I'll talk a bit more about him later in the episode. But uh, in his book, uh, his tell all book in 2009, The Truth About Ikea, he says that um he says that the wood they were sourcing from China, uh, he claims, the quote is, uh, I know that even in China, you can't buy legal wood for the price that we paid there. So he's saying that, you know, and they, this is a 20-year executive at Ikea saying, I, I know the prices in China, and even though it is cheaper there, the price we were getting at, it was not legal wood. So even with, you know, all of the uh, abuses of the environment that the government in China allows, they were still being like, no, we're not even going to obey these laws. Well... Cheap wood doesn't put um, a deep enough divot into a toddler's skull. (laughs) 
And so that's the other thing we've been mentioning that they go through very well in this broken documentary is, you know, tip over falls, killing kids with Ikea furniture. And it was something where before I, uh, uh, before I watched the documentary, I assumed, oh, these are freak accidents. There was, you know, nothing malicious. This stuff happens. But no, the, the documentary, uh, uh, Broken, it goes through very well. There's a federal U.S. department called the Consumer Product Safety Commission, which uh, does have... The Consumer Product Kind Recommendation Commission. <laughs> basically, yes. So they, uh, uh, they have voluntary, not mandatory furniture standards. And for dressers, um, for dressers... The standard, the Voluntary Consumer Product Safety Commission standard is, can you pull out all the drawers of the dresser and not have it fall over, or pull out one drawer and put a 50-pound weight on it? Because unsurprisingly, you know, kids are curious. Kids will climb on dressers. They'll think, you know, hey, this is a ladder or whatever else. They'll pull out the drawers. They'll fuck around with it. So this is, you know, the U.S. regulatory standard of dressers, which IKEA knew about and ignored. And we knew they knew about it and ignored this voluntary standard because in their 2002 manual where they introduced the Malm dresser, M-A-L-M, their standard dresser that has killed at least eight kids in the United States. And it's about, uh, I'd say about four feet from Sean McCarthy right now. (laughs) uh, Yeah, there's like a a variant of the Malm in the room we're recording in right now. Yeah. And then another one, two rooms over. I mean, it's only killed two children, so. (laughs) Yeah. Well, this one, yeah, it's a a double wide model, so. Yeah, there's there's more mass at the bottom, so it's fine. We call it the twin, uh, (laughs) the twin crusher. (laughs) Well, like, they, they're so tippy because they don't have much mass at the bottom of the structure, and they're not as wide. Apparently, uh the way that dressers are supposed to be made is they're supposed to be heavy on the bottom and the back and they're supposed to be wide. And I guess, uh, it's safe, but it saves on shipping costs to make a dresser that, uh, in addition to not being able to fit nearly as many clothes as would be practical. Um, they also are light and, uh, it's almost like they put all the weight in the front of them. Um, <laughs> it's almost like they want it to fall down. Yeah, and then they they tell consumers, "Oh, but yeah, we're not responsible because we told you to uh, drill a hole in your drywall and attach an anchor to it." You know, the thing that uh, everyone who buys IKEA furniture and is clearly renting yes. uh, is able to do: drill holes in their drywall. Uh, so that when it falls over, you also have to patch up a giant divot in your uh, child's bedroom Ooh. when you're repainting it for the new one. Yeah, I mean, they just saying they're just saying, go ahead, the, the security deposit. You can just lose that. Yeah. Don't be sad about your toddler. You're crazy. Take fifty million dollars. It's much better. <laughs> <laughs> so yes, <laughs> IKEA. IKEA cheaper than abortion. <laughs> I mean, like, look, and again, before it's abortion I, with an um, with a little circle yeah, over the like O, non-functional umlauts. <laughs> yeah. Before I knew this story, I, again, I, I did think, hey, these are freak accidents. IKEA, IKEA tip overs, killing kids. But no, the documentary goes through very well in IKEA. The Malm dresser, when they introduced this dresser in 2002, the instruction manual has a ki- has a picture of a child climbing up on it and getting tipped over, and they have an X through this picture. Well, in fairness, it looks like a small workman. <laughs> it's more of like a Mario figure, and you're like, well, he can take a hit. Yeah. 
Um, and, you know, their internal documents did acknowledge the problem of tip over injury, seriously injuring and potentially killing children. And the thing is, they, uh, well, first of all, they put all the onus on the consumer, like we're mentioning, where they said, hey, just s- screw, uh, screw it into the wall, even though clearly, like we just said, if you're renting, you can't do that. They put all the onus on the consumer, but that has been a trend in the United States where, uh, for example, chicken all has salmonella in it and you know uh numerous people have died because of salmonella chicken in the united states and, and they you know, just say eggs just get shit on and you're supposed to be like yeah that's fine right <laughs> it, it's your fault for not uh washing it yeah for not washing your eggs and then uh cooking it until it's rubber exactly like and that's exactly what happens with salmonella chicken like uh it's an interesting story uh a kid in the united states died from an e coli i believe it was a wendy's burger uh, either Wendy's or Dairy Queen or one of those. Jack in the Box had the E. coli thing. Oh, maybe it was Jack in the Box. Anyways, a kid died from an E. coli burger. So finally, the United States in the 90s said, okay, we're banning E. coli. You cannot have E. coli <laughs> in the meat anymore. This is in the 1990s. And since that time, there have been numerous calls to be like, hey, could we also ban salmonella from the chicken? <laughs> and every time the industry has fought back. And so in the United States, it is perfectly legal for them to just cover all their chickens with salmonella. And numerous people have died. And every time they go, well, you should have cooked it better. You should have washed it better. We told you that if you cook, that if you're uh, cooking chicken, you got to wash your hands before you touch the lettuce because we have salmonella all over the shit. So again and again, it is all uh, the consumer's responsibility. And this is what happened with the tip overs where uh, the uh, uh, current uh, acting commissioner of this uh, Consumer Product Safety Commission says they want to work with stakeholders to raise awareness about how you need to screw in your dresser. Yeah. Uh, and, well, you know. Well, what was really funny is in the Unbroken documentary, you never see a government, of, a former government official from an agency just outright shit on the current head of the agency. Mm-hmm. But they were interviewing like the former commissioners of this board and they're like, yeah, the current lady, like I've never seen her do anything that uh, uh, the powers that be disagree with. Mm-hmm. And so they have it's a volunteer. They, they want Ikea to self-regulate because they think it has an incentive to do so. Because mm-hmm. like, well, if stories of kids fucking get killed by the mom, yeah. get out, then they'll have an incentive to make it better. One of the one of the most unnerving things in the documentary was uh, one of the parents was like, yeah, people ask me, like, why didn't you hear it? And it's like, well, because it was muffled from falling on my child. Yeah, it only happens twice a year. But yes, um, and then uh, another thing they go through in the documentary is the Consumer Product Safety Commission is prohibited by law from saying anything about a company without running it by them first. (laughs) So they want it to tell Ikea, hey, you have to do a recall. And Ikea was like, let's not use the word recall. Let's say repair (laughs) and we'll send out repair kits. So they sent out these repair kits that, again, people are supposed to screw it into the wall when many people are renting and cannot do that. Um, And then, of course, after they sent out these repair kits, kids kept dying because parents hadn't heard about these repair kits or the recall. And then finally, Ikea did a recall. But again, kids kept dying because nobody knew about the recall. Yeah. uh, If you have um, Ikea furniture in your apartment now, uh, think back to that time that you were explicitly alerted by Ikea that they will buy back your dresser because that happened within the last two years. Mm Mm-hmm. And I first learned about it in the documentary about all the kids that got crushed. Yes. Like the recall system is fundamentally flawed uh, because it's 
I, I mean, it's it's just a manifestation of it's easier to uh, say you're sorry than ask permission. Exactly. It, instead of building it right, they'll just, you know, a few kids will get killed and then they'll be like, oh, we're sorry. We'll buy it back. And uh, of course, you know, they no one no one knows about it. They tweeted about it. Which, uh, even though we do all follow the IKEA uh, Twitter website for their great irony racism, um, it, you know that one seemed to slip under the radar. Right, and it's kind of a bitch to just package up the thing and send it back. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that too. Like you, they were like, "Oh, we'll send someone over to help, like pack it up." But I, I mean, if you're I mean, buying IKEA furniture, works. you probably don't have that kind of free time. Like. <laughs> One of the things that they also mentioned in passing was that America has become addicted to cheap furniture since the 1980s, which isn't it. It 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 sounded like they were also kind of placing the blame on the consumer. But if you if you, yeah. I mean, look at trends. I mean, it's, it becomes a cliche to talk about neoliberalization. But if you look at you know the trends uh, since the 1980s and neoliberalization, uh, Americans have become very. Um, uh, how would you say it? Like displaced. Like we're all constantly moving to go to wherever the jobs are because you know regions just get devastated. And if you're constantly moving, you need to replace a lot of furniture. You need and you buying uh, handcrafted, uh, you know, artisan furniture that won't crush your child is expensive, and yeah. it's a cost that you know, along with everything else in American life, you just can't afford. Since 1980, there's more. Wage, real wages have stagnated since about 1979 or 1980. Hmm. And yeah. also, uh, there's more renters, but the cost of furniture has just kept on its normal trajectory. Hmm. Mm. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, And so, yeah, so to end the, the Malm story, uh, again, they introduced this in 2002, knowing that it's going to tip over and kill kids. Uh, and they're just like, hey, let's just put the blame on the consumer. Finally, by 2016, there have been enough kids killed in the United States specifically uh, where they have to do this recall. But again, people don't hear about it. It keeps killing kids. They pay like 50 million to three of the families. But the thing is, you know, there's still uh, tens of millions of these dressers, not only in the United States, but around the world. And you can imagine, say, if this thing is in fucking China and it tips over and kills a kid. Well, Ikea doesn't have to worry about that because it's not going to get the press that if uh, it kills a toddler in the United States. So, I mean, it's it's just a really uh, uh, horrible situation and they should be ashamed of themselves. Well, it also, you know, it helps uh, enforce the one child policy. <laughs> Uh, but and, and also on this thing about IKEA's responsibility for uh, this, uh, the environmental destruction of getting people to keep buying furniture, you know, and throwing it out and this kind of thing. The New Yorker did a profile um, and they asked uh, the journalist asked IKEA's sustainability manager whether IKEA was at least partially culpable for having created a throwaway culture. She resorted to false humility. Quote, I think the trend of using products for a short lifespan comes from consumers. I wish we had that much influence i hope that our products have enough quality that they can have a second and third lives in other people's homes so that is the uh sustainability manager for ikea being like oh i wish we had that much influence but you <laughs> but know it's your fault yeah <laughs> this fucking uh billion multi-billion dollar multinational is acting like kind of a, a humble bragging um uh, random person off the street um but I guess what we should do here is it's it's your fault for uh, every place you try to plant roots in, the rent gets jacked up every year, and you have to move to 
uh, further and further neighborhoods, uh, inciting the cost of relocating yourself. Yeah, I'm going to go out on a limb and say that I don't need to, we don't need to explain to our listenership <laughs> why IKEA's so, alleged solution to all this is bullshit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but I guess we could talk a bit about the uh, biography of the IKEA founder, uh, Ingvar Komprad. Um, it's interesting. According to a book by Thomas Schoberg, his paternal grandparents go back to being old money in 19th century Germany. They were His paternal grandparents were uh, some of the wealthiest estate owners in the German state of uh, Thurgen. Uh, Thurgen, yeah. They were apparently uh, distant relatives of uh, Paul von Hindenburg, you might know as the Reich's president before Adolf Hitler took over, as well as the German, uh, one of the two most powerful German generals in World War I. Um, so, you know, he's like an old money aristocracy German family on the father's side. Hindenburg, the guy who, when he saw the brown shirts marching through the streets in the massive Nazi demonstration when Hitler was appointed to power, thought it was the boys marching home from World War I. <laughs> Yeah, he was so senile by that point. Um, but yeah, so um, the uh, and then his paternal grandmother, uh, Ingvar Komprad, uh, his paternal grandmother was a Sudetenland German. You might know the uh, the Czech provinces that Hitler demanded from Czechoslovakia are these uh, uh, Czech border provinces with Germany where lots of Germans live. So his grandmother was Lived from there. His grandmother was from there. Uh, Her family left uh, that area for Sweden in 1896. Um, According to the New Yorker, in the official IKEA museum, the only thing that is mentioned about Ingvor Komprad's Nazi connections is that the IKEA museum mentions that his grandmother was very close to her grandson and that she saw Hitler as Germany's future. That is all. (laughs) So what has happened, uh, and we'll get to this in just a moment, uh, in 1994, his Nazi connections come out, and they have explained it away by saying that he loved his grandmother and she was a Nazi. So it's his grandmother's fault that that he was a Nazi. He he made a mistake by listening to her. Yeah. I've actually got a a book about this in my uh, Lebensraum bookshelf. Uh, But so... um, so the family, you know, his his grandparents uh, on both sides emigrate to Sweden. Apparently, the paternal uh, uh, grandparents they start um, a farm in uh, a Swedish pro- province of a uh, small land. Uh, you know, don't get don't get mad at me. Nobody knows how to pronounce these things. Uh, yeah, as soon as as soon as you go to Sweden, like you can just free ball it, and no one's gonna notice. <laughs> Uh, but so they start this farm because, again, his paternal grandparents were wealthy German landowners. His grandfather starts this farm um, uh, called Elmtiard, uh, which was at the time. <laughs> yeah, just, just say it from the back of the you throat. Know, usually, no one's going to call you on yeah, it. Usually we would make fun of Sean, but we don't know either. <laughs> yeah. So. Uh, it, it had 449 hectares of land, and it was the largest farm in the area. Uh, and again, that's from the Thomas Schoberg book. And from the New Yorker write-up, which was written by Lauren Collins, she uh, she wrote up this uh, this write-up of IKEA and a biography of the founder. A- according to this, this farm Eltiard, um, it it uh, floundered, and in the spring of 19 of eighteen ninety seven, after the local savings bank rejected his loan application, um, Ingvar Komprad's grandfather shot his hounds and then killed himself. Uh, in 1897 his widow continued to run the farm which in 1918 passed to her eldest son uh who was ingvar's father uh he married the daughter of the wait wait how did he kill himself he shot himself oh i thought i thought he climbed a dresser (laughs) (laughs) 
the note is all pictures like <laughs> give uh my medallions to my son yeah he, he he wrote out a diagram for how he was going to kill himself and his son was just inspired uh, yeah. this is the original design for the mole <laughs> His, yeah, his note. It's so it's a picture of the estates, and then it has his son standing there with a check mark, and his daughter standing there with an X through it. <laughs> no, the sons get the estate. Um, yeah. So uh, uh, Ingvar's father uh, takes over uh, the farm, which again was the largest farm in this uh, particular area of Sweden. Um, he marries the daughter of the uh, proprietor of the area's biggest country store. Um, and they kind of talk about this is a wilderness area of Sweden in the uh, in the forests. Um, it is, uh, yeah, it's it's near the small village of Ungenard. Uh, and again, this is in the province of Smallland. I love crime novels. <laughs> but the important thing is, uh, according to the New Yorker profile, they write at the farm uh, the silence is uh, more likely to was more likely to be to be broken by the bark of a roebuck than the sound of a tractor or a car. You know, there was uh, deers all over. Apparently, when Ingvar Komprad was a child, he went uh, fishing. Um, he, he caught fish and crayfish, and, uh, you know, he would, like, stuff his the crayfish down his pants and bring them home, and, and, you know, he would work on the farm and get up early and help his father with the cows and That's this kind of shit. Most people would use buckets or something, mm-hmm. but... Um, but he's born in 1926. Uh, the founder of IKEA, Inga, Ingvar Komprad, is born in 1926. We should mention, apparently the surname Komprad is a uh, variant of Comrade that dates back to the 14th century. Huh. So interesting that he became a fascist <laughs> uh, when his last name is Comrade. Uh, but so, and you know, the... Um, and so the New Yorker profile goes through, I guess, the standard billionaire biography at this point where they talk about his early business adventures. Which included uh, bringing American grad students into uh, his small village where they would uh, have a couple of them impregnate the young ladies before ritualistically killing them for a good crop yield. I will say the uh, the IKEA headquarters is in a small village like two and a half hours by train outside of Copenhagen and it really does sound like the village from Midsummer. <laughs> it's like this weird company town but in the Swedish social democratic model where everybody who lives there works for IKEA and there's like an IKEA hotel and everything's IKEA. It's fucking bear. It's a bear cage. Job. No one knows why. Yeah. <laughs> I just realized that in Midsummer, like they they have all the foreshadowing with those diagrams of like you know, lady cuts up her pubes and puts it into a biscuit, and it's it's really just an IKEA manual for <laughs> mating rituals. It's a check mark. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, so, yeah, Ingvar Komprad, he talks about his early businesses. He says, uh, after he's born in 1926, he says he inter- engineered his first business deal at the age of five when he contracted with an aunt in Stockholm to buy a hundred boxes of matches. Then I sold the boxes at two or three ore each, sometimes even five ore, uh, he told an interviewer. Talk about profit margins, but I still remember that lovely feeling. <laughs> Um, and he says almost he br- as good as when I swung the hammer down on the old man's skull. <laughs> uh, he says that he eventually he lost, he lost fifty thousand dollars. <laughs> this deal. He no, says. 
He says that he eventually branched out into Christmas cards and wall hangings. He caught fish and picked lingonberries. At age 11, he made a killing in garden seeds. So he got into the lingonberry market. (laughs) He made a killing in garden seeds when he convinced them to climb up the side of a dresser. Uh, As he tells it... uh, In my last year in middle school, my first rather childish business was beginning to look like a real firm. And um, in 1943, uh, he says, at his Uncle Ernst's kitchen table, he founds IKEA. And the IK stands for his name, uh, his initials, Ingvar Komprad. The E is for the farm name, Elmtiard. And the A is for um, the the small town. (laughs) <laughs> the A is for the small town that the farm was located by, uh, Ungenard. And so he sold, uh, uh, founds it in 1943. He sold pens, encyclopedias, table runners, reinforced socks. Uh, and, and in, in 1948, uh, in imitating a competitor, he adds furniture to his uh, profile. He's originally just selling furniture by mail, the way the New Yorker, uh, profile describes it is at 6:50 every morning the milk bus came by uh, his his father's farm and uh, picked up goods that had been ordered from his uh, uh, mail delivery service. So the milk bus would come to the farm and pick up the goods and then ship them for him. Um, but the mail order business proved tricky. Customers were not always pleased with the items that arrived on their doorstep. In 1952, he bought a joinery uh, in Ulmhurt, which is the small town that is now an Ikea company town. <laughs> he bought a joinery there in 1952. Um, his grandfather's general store had once occupied the same site, and he set up a showroom where people could come and see the goods. And this is the basis of modern Ikea. The first store opens in 1952 uh, in this place that is now a very creepy Ikea company town where the official Ikea museum is located. And he he realized over time that he could engineer the rooms just right so that like you can have a different argument with your significant other as you pass through each different part of a piece of furniture. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay, the walkway kind of snakes around rather than just... Yeah. It's not... It doesn't look like a Costco or something. Yeah, so, you know, first you can uh, have a fight about the color of a chair, um, then the style of a lamp, and then whether or not you should uh, get plants in the house or whether they're going to poison the pets. And then finally, you know, you you go through the, um, the room where you pick up the things and have an argument over who carries what before finally checking out and having the perfect parking lot uh, to really yell at each other. (laughs) Um, And so, again, the first store opens in Sweden in 1952. The first one abroad opens in Oslo in um, 1963, Oslo. Uh, In 1963, the first one abroad. And then within, uh, according to the New Yorker profile, within 10 years later... Like, hey, you pronounced Oslo the correct way and then corrected yourself to the wrong way. (laughs) Damn it. (laughs) Or like no, I was like, damn, that was spot on. You changed it, dude. This podcast has destroyed my self esteem on pronunciations. <laughs> I just say it both Deservedly. ways. Deservedly, I say yeah, it, you say it all the ways. Yeah, that you can that, think of. that's my new strategy. Is I say it all the ways, and then I fix it in post, so I got the right one. <laughs> we record for three hours. I try ten times at every word. Oslo, <laughs> Oslo. Uh, but yes, yeah, so that's their first store abroad, um, and. Uh, uh, in 1963, but uh, within 10 years later, they are expanding so rapidly that apparently an executive uh, 
uh, opens a store in uh, in Konstanz in Germany when they meant they meant to open one in Koblenz. Uh, an executive opened the store in the wrong city of Germany because they were expanding so rapidly and nobody was stupid, paying attention. Uh, Sean? Yes. You got Copeland's right. Thank you. Uh, but so, yeah, so that's kind of how Ikea expands. And we mentioned throughout the 80s, they're using uh, slave labor in um, East Germany, Cuba for assembly. Um, they're contracting with the Romanian government and paying bribes under the table to get... Uh, premium access to uh, resources, the wood that they're so dependent on for their their products. Um, but I guess I wanted to spend a minute just talking about uh, his Nazi ties, because I think that is important. And you should know just a bit of background for Sweden in World War II, just from Wikipedia. Sweden was neutral in World War II, but it was also an essential supplier of Nazi Germany. They, um, they, they had a very neutral highway... Uh, running from the shores where Nazi boats would dock to Norway, where the Nazis would invade. Uh, so just from Wikipedia, Sweden acted as a major supplier of raw materials for Hitler's military, laundered the gold confiscated from Holocaust victims, and often for failed to provide adequate asylum for, for refugees, including the near-completely exterminated Norwegian Jews. Uh, between 1933 and 1939, Sweden accepted only 3,000 Jewish refugees and permitted 1,000 more to use Sweden as a transit stop. As the war broke out, Sweden only absorbed political refugees and turned away Jews from occupied Norway at the border, uh, many of whom were later murdered at Auschwitz. And an interesting fact about this point is that um, one of Ingvar Komprad's best friends throughout his life was a Jewish refugee from Austria that his parents hired as a farmhand on their farm whose parents were both murdered at Auschwitz. And uh, you can imagine the kind of wages that the parents could offer to a refugee farmhand who would be deported back to certain extermination. His, his farm had a sign that said, Fry mocked Arbite. <laughs> I say he had the wages of destruction. The sign is a pic. Uh, it's a picture of somebody <laughs> working, and then it's uh, zero dollars. <laughs> uh, but yes, so <clears throat> it's a star of David, and then an arrow, and then a figure with a hammer. But but so it, it is an interesting thing where you know his uh, he was a Nazi, but one of his close friends was, was Jewish through most of his life. And this journalist Elizabeth Asbrink actually wrote a book called Maiden Sweden, and she talks about, among other things, the founder's Nazi connections. And she actually gets to interview him in 2010, and she asks him about the contradiction. Um, and he says, in 2010, there's no contradiction as far as I'm concerned. Uh, per Engdahl, who was the leader of the Swedish neo-Nazi party, was a great man, and I'll maintain that as long as I live. In 2010, the founder of IKEA says, the uh, uh, leader of the Swedish neo-Nazi party that helped uh, ratline out all these Nazi war criminals uh, was a great man. And, he was certainly a great Catholic. Yes. And so it is something where, I mean, the basic story of his Nazi ties is that in 1994, this is published for the first time by a Swedish newspaper. And, uh, you know, he, uh, like, admits it. But then this journalist, Elizabeth... Um, uh, Asbrink, when she wrote her book, she found a bunch of other stuff that he never copped to 
uh, with regards to his Nazi ties, including the fact that the Swedish security services were monitoring him during the war and considered him an integral part of the Swedish Nazi party and a recruiter who had, who had helped out various people. Um, it's real. Like when, when people talk about like the contradiction of like, he had a, a Jewish friend, it's sort of like the, like, I'm not racist. I have a black friend type thing Mm -hmm. where, or, um, there's also, uh, at the, uh, I forget the name of the, uh, Oh, Vonsi conference. Um, there was a discussion. Uh, the Vonsi conference was where the Nazis, uh, planned out the logistics of who qualified as a Jew and how they would carry out the Holocaust. And Mm -hmm. one of the problems that they had to address was that everyone in Germany knew a good Jew. Mm -hmm. And so they had to be, they had to find a way to convince people out of that. And it's, it's sort of this phenomenon where when you have uh, any kind of uh, systemic mass murder Mm -hmm. uh, of a, of an ethnic group, whenever you have a genocide that everyone has a, um, who knows, who's close to people within an ethnic group you know they have people in that group they like but they still can it's it they can create kind of that contradiction in their mind where they may like the one person but still believe that that group of people needs to be murdered right like himmler's secret speech to the ss he talks about this where he's uh uh, talking about, you know, we, we can say in theory, you know, we're going to exterminate the Jews and that's fine. And then he gives the quote, which is, and then they turn up the 80 million upstanding Germans and each one of them has his decent Jew saying, you know, all the Jews are swine except for this one. Yeah. And so that's... <laughs> it's, it's, it's you know, Mexicans are rapists, but some of them are good people. Exactly. Um, but so uh, uh, according to this journalist, um, Elizabeth Asbrink, uh, she said she found the Swedish Security Services archive. They uh, she found the IKEA founders file in this archive from 1943. Um, according to this, Ingvar Kompred uh, was 17 years old. Uh, he, he was member number 4014 of the Swedish Socialist Unity, the country's leading far-right party during the war. Um, Sweden's General Security Service apparently kept him under surveillance for at least eight months, confiscating and reading his correspondence. In November 42, he wrote that he had recruited, quote, quite a few comrades to the party and missed no opportunity to work for the movement. Um, and then the... Uh, uh, the memorandum about his correspondence reached the 6th Division of the Stockholm Police, uh, July 1943. Six days later, he sent an application to the county administrative office to register his new company, IKEA. So he was a Nazi during the time he founded IKEA. And then even after the war, um, we mentioned uh, Per Engdahl was the um, the founder of what was called the Malmo Movement, which, <laughs> which was, it was based in Ma- the Swedish city of Malmo. Right. Just oh what? Just because it sounds like one of their pieces of furniture. <laughs> uh, so in 1951, it became official. Uh, they gathered they gathered in the Swedish town of Malmo, and uh, under uh, Per Engdahl's leadership, this was a uh, formation of you know Oswald Mosley, the English fascist, his black shirts, uh, the Belgian fascist, the Dutch Nazis, French fascists, Germans still loyal to Hitler, Swiss Nazis, remnants of the Hungarian Arrow Cross, the Italian MSI. So this is this doesn't sound like youthful indiscretion. No, not at all. Um, Danish and Norwegian Nazis. So this was a movement that was based around um, uh, 
he received uh, Per Engdahl received refugees, hid them from their persecutors, and helped transport them to safety. Nazi refugees, that is. By 1943, Engdahl had created a network for Europe's shattered Nazi and fascist movements. Was someone? Are there secret Nazi refugees hiding in his house? Mm-hmm. And they like they had a journal. <laughs> but so, um, and uh, yeah, like there are people outside trying to give me social democracy. <laughs> And then they were given away when a dresser fell. (laughs) What's that sound? It was kind of deadened, but I still heard it. (laughs) So um, Elizabeth uh, Asbrink writes about, uh, nobody knows when uh, Ingvar Komprad left the Swedish Nazi party. Uh, But on the other hand, we know that his involvement in Per Engdahl's fascist organization, the new Swedish movement, continued after the end of the war. He invited comrades to the movement from his home in Elmtiard, his big farm, where he was regarded as their benefactor. There are letters where he is asked to donate or thanked for the latest contributions. Komprad also acted as a publisher for one of the fascist leader Per Engdahl's books. The two had become close friends and called each other BB, best brother. Engdahl was invited to Kamprad's first wedding in 1951, uh, where he gave a beautiful speech. So again, he, uh, and apparently he also wrote a letter to um, the fascist leader, Per Engvall, uh, in 1951. He wrote a letter, a letter to thank him for his book, The Renewal of the, the West, where he engaged in, of course, uh, Holocaust denial and, uh, you know, standard Nazi white supremacy and stuff. And he published one of uh, his uh, neo-Nazi books as well. And it, it, all the way up to 2010, he gives an interview where he says he was a great man. This neo-Nazi who smuggled Nazi war criminals out of Europe and set up a network. I don't think he was a neo-Nazi. I think he was just a Nazi. <laughs> he was. He, They're all neo after 45. If you're smuggling current Nazis and running the Nazi party while they're Nazis. Um, so in 1940, and then just last thing on this Nazi thing, because I, I find this... Uh, Really just uh, incredible. Uh, According to the New Yorker profile, in 1994, when the the Nazi ties are first revealed, and again, this stuff that we just read about the security service, he denied all that, being a recruiter. At least he never came forward. We had to wait until, you know, the mid-2000s for that stuff to come out. But the first stuff of the Nazi ties comes out in 1994, and he writes a handwritten letter to IKEA employees uh, entitled, My Greatest Fiasco. And just quoting a little bit from it. Dear IKEA family, you have been young yourself, and perhaps you find something in your youth now, so long afterward, that was ridiculous and stupid. In that case, you will understand me better. In hindsight, I know that early on I should have included this in my fiascos, but now that is spilled milk. and then uh, the employees responded with a letter signed by hundreds. Ingvar, we are here whenever you need us. Uh, and then, uh, uh, and then uh, he, ha- he cooperated for an official biography uh, in 1998 or 9. And the official biographer wrote that when he received that letter, then the father of the family broke down and wept like a child. <laughs> um, <laughs> Knowing that he was buddy buddies with Oswald Mosley, I'd love to have heard what he thought about Elvis Costello. <laughs> He's not he's not a child though when he was doing all this. Yeah, yeah I mean he, he was in his forties. Well yeah. he, was he was like in his forties and fifties for some of it. Yeah. Like well he was in his uh twenties when he was helping fund the movement after the war. But then, you know, again, all the way up until 2010, he says the leader of this neo-Nazi movement who helped uh, Nazi uh war criminals escape prosecution was a great man in 2010. 
he says this. Yeah, he's like, it was a mistake in my 20s. And you think back to the mistakes of your 20s. It's like, oh, I had some bad relationships. I got way too drunk hosting an open mic. I was a member of a neo-Nazi party. <laughs> right. And, you know, we mentioned just earlier about how Sweden was turning away all these Jewish refugees. Well, part of the reason was because of the pressure of these Nazi and far-right parties saying, you know, these people are vermin, don't allow them in Sweden. And, you know, they had an influence on the government. Um <clears throat> But uh, and then uh, last thing from this on like, this official biography, probably the reason that Sweden didn't get invaded is because they were so I mean, the reason is they were so sympathetic. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I mean, they were providing the raw materials for Nazi Germany's war machine um, in the official biography. Uh, he adds a chapter for his uh, Nazi uh, links called, quote, a youth and his errors. He ends the chapter saying, As I have lain awake at night pondering this dismal affair, I have asked myself, When is an old man forgiven for the sins of his youth? Is it a crime that I was brought up by a German grandmother and a German father? (laughs) So, you know, just... uh, It's his grandmother's fault. Throwing Oma under the bus to uh, explain his Nazi ties. But, um... I guess with the time we have left, we should talk a little bit about this tell-all book in 2009. Um, Johann Stenebo was a 20-year IKEA executive, uh, or he worked at IKEA more than 20 years. Uh, he was an executive for a time. He opened one of their most profitable stores in the United Kingdom. Um, he makes the claim that on the executive floor, this is from a write-up of his book in ABC News, uh, on the executive floor, Stenebo claims foreigners were repeatedly denigrated as the N-word. Uh, which, I mean, you know what it is. I'm not going to say it. But yes, the executives at Ikea were calling foreigners the N-word. Uh, they apparently had uh, it, no it chance... It was uh, Njolmner, which is uh, <laughs> one of their chairs. <laughs> they, they apparently had no chance of promotion within the company. Um, and uh, he uh, Stenebo blames that on uh, Ingor Comprad's increasing paranoia. In Ikea, in spite of being the world's largest furniture company, is run exclusively by people from Olmholt in the Swedish region of Smaland. This is the small company town that Ikea makes all executives go live in for a while, and it's like this weird fucking midsummer forest where they're two and a half hours from Copenhagen by train, there's no civilization, and almost everybody in the fucking town works for Ikea. So, you know, just the kind of weird uh, company environment. Um, he also goes. I hate when you're trying to uh, smash an elder skull with a hammer, and it's made of cheap particle board and just bounces off. <laughs> uh, in his book, he also goes through how IKEA funds WWF, the World Wildlife Foundation. Uh, they fund Greenpeace, and they do this. Uh, like we said earlier, instead of using the best contractors, they use the cheapest, he says. Charitable gestures are cheaper than a clean conscience and have the added advantage of being tax deductible. Um, and we uh, we went through this earlier. But he also goes through how the carpets, the uh, uh, the uh, uh, Barnslig uh, carpets, which is apparently a Swedish word that means childlike, um, the Barnslig carpets were apparently made by Pakistani children. Um, according to his book. And uh, we, we can spend a second going through all the various uh, slave labor uh, complaints about Ikea and this kind of stuff. Wait, are, are they just hide, like hiding all of their slave labor in plain sight using Swedish names? Yeah. <laughs> Childlike carpets. Yeah. Nobody wanted to bother trying to pronounce this shit, so no. they didn't look into it. Yeah. Oh, it's the uh, Juhinger bookshelf. 
Oh, yeah. He also reveals uh, in his book that there's an anecdote from the official biography that gets told a lot about how Ingvar Komprad has a 30-year-old clip-in Ikea sofa in his living room along with the uh, uh, the Billy bookshelf, you know, like he's had these for over 30 years. He says this story is totally made up and they just <laughs> spread it because credulous press people repeated it. <laughs> So, you know, and this is supposed to be like an anecdote to say not only is the founder of Ikea, even though he's a billionaire, like a kind of humble down to earth guy who uses Ikea furniture, but also it lasted 30 years. (laughs) And that's just complete bullshit. You know, it's fake durable furniture. Um, And he also says, um, uh, last thing, Johann Stenebo says the sons, uh, he has three sons and Ingvar Komprad, now that he's died, you know, the sons are taking over the business. He says the sons, Matthias and Peter, who were promoted to top management five years ago, um, this is uh, an ABC News story from 2009, uh, the elder son, Peter, in particular, has been positioned since then as Ikea's heir apparent. Stenebo, however, calls him an incompetent racist, unquote, and anyone that criticized Peter for his chauvinistic attitudes was silenced by the patriarch, patriarch Engvar. And there's multiple um, interviews and press accounts where they describe the uh, children as uh, morons, and they have since taken over the company, but also, you know, the racism does not die with the father, unsurprisingly. <laughs> And there's also a story from The New Yorker about a plant in Danville, Virginia, where they were playing, you know, really low wages, doing mandatory overtime. So the um, the workers there successfully unionized. Um, but uh, the, the one of the workers who uh, joined the, uh, the union, he says, quote, I truly believe that Danville management has a plantation mentality. They think that they own these workers and it's their right to use them any way they choose. Um, and six former employees of that plant have filed uh, grievances with the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission alleging racial discrimination. So there are, again and again, unsurprisingly, with this Nazi founder who makes all the executives live in one small town in Sweden, there are, again and again, racial discrimination complaints levied against IKEA, where executives refer to fucking foreigners as the N-word. And, you know, so with the time we have left, uh, we can go through also uh, another case that Stephen found of Harvard University's involvement in IKEA's clear-cutting. Yeah, so um, the... The quasi-legal entanglements between IKEA and the Romanian communist regime didn't didn't end even after uh, the communist re- regime was deposed. So when when Ceausescu and his wife were executed during the Romanian Revolution in 1989, they were made to climb a dresser. <laughs> <laughs> they actually. Uh, top-ranking party officials who were able to escape the chaos of the revolution eventually came back and basically forged ownership over tracts of land in the forest and said it was theirs to sell. And they ended up selling it to, um, years, years later, in 2004, they sold some of it to Harvard, like the the business arm of Harvard that manages its investment portfolio. Mm -hmm. They were looking for like some alternative assets, I guess, for higher returns. And so they sent a a local contact, this guy called Dragos Lipan, uh, a Roma- he ran a Romanian investment management firm, and they gave him millions of dollars to buy uh, tracts of the of old growth forest for on Harvard's behalf. Um, now Harvard may not have known it, but uh, at the time he bought 
some of this illegally obtained land from like the old like the old school uh, Romanian communist ex senior officials, and they claimed ignorance over it. But in a twenty in a twenty ten memo from Lipan's company to Harvard, he he detailed all of like yo oh by the way there's all of these like legal hardships that you may face later if you continue to hold on to the forestry stuff on the forestry assets and eventually harvard this is getting too hard there are too many questions legally legal questions surrounding these forests and harvard tried to do sort of an end around where they used two shell companies actually um they used the shell company in luxembourg owned by another one in delaware and tried to simply they essentially sold it to themselves to try and like uh basically retain ownership but throw people off the track of who actually owned the forestry tracks. Right. Well, it's good that they're paying attention in their own business courses. <laughs> so yeah. a- apparently and this nonprofit, like, cause they set it up, I think in 1983, Ingvar Comprad transfers ownership of Ikea to a nonprofit based in, I guess the Netherlands, which we should mention the European union is currently investigating for illegal tax evasion. Mm-hmm. But so this nonprofit was for a time, a bigger nonprofit than the Gates foundation, because it owned all of the IKEA assets, and the Economist has described its actual charitable givings as "quote unquote" a rounding error. <laughs> so it was just this fake nonprofit that mm-hmm. he set up in the Netherlands to dodge taxes. Oh, yeah. So eventually, Harvard, like uh, people, investigators still kept inquiring about Harvard's holdings in Romania because there were other, like based. Based on what broken details, there are other claims to the forest that were seen as dubious and people just wouldn't get away from it. So Harvard actually ended up selling to IKEA. They use in 2015, they sold IKEA uh, most of Harvard's forestry assets for about $62 million. IKEA said they also had no idea about the the original illicit contracts that were used to obtain this and that they would, you know, investigate further or whatever. Mm-hmm. But that that actually is an ongoing investigation and actually Harvard and Ikea are in litigation over just who is, would be who knew what, when Mm -hmm. over this $62 million contract. Right. No, I mean, and it is something where almost every multinational we get to does this bullshit with subcontractors that we've talked about, but uh, just like really quickly, I'll give you a couple other hits. Um, uh, OCCRP wrote a report in 2016 going through how the Cotton Campaign, an international organization working with, uh, well, uh, an international organization called the Cotton Cotton Campaign, pointed out that IKEA is using um, a subcontractor in Turkmenistan. Uh, They have made the argument, uh, the Cotton Campaign has, that all cotton sourced from Turkmenistan can be known to have slave labor. Turkmenistan, like the, they import zero cotton, they export their cotton, and slave labor is all throughout the supply chain. So IKEA was using slave labor cotton from Turkmenistan in 2016, uh, specifically for their uh, Nippon Rose and Malo <laughs> duvet covers and pillow shams. Um, so the cotton campaign said that uh, uh, they have this subcontractor, 
and uh, Ikea does the basic thing like, you know, we're investigating our subcontractors and we will terminate if we find any allegations, blah, blah, blah. Um, but it's always just putting the, uh, the onus on the subcontractor. Um, yes, both according to this write-up, both Turkmen Civil Society and the International Labor Organization have reported on forced labor throughout Turkmenistan's cotton industry. We mentioned at the top uh, the China, uh, the mass internment of Uyghur Muslims. Um, the Australian program ABC Four Corners interviewed um, uh, multiple Uyghurs who said that they were uh, forced to work in textile factories as slave labor. Um, these, uh, the region that these Uyghurs were forced to work in as slave labor. Again, there's allegations that up to a million Uyghurs are detained. There have been uh, Chinese government documents that reveal plans for quote-unquote re-education through labor. Uh, the province, uh, the area where these Uyghurs are detained and forced to work in textile factories has been a cotton and textile source for Target, Cotton On, Jeans Sweat, uh, Jeans West, Dangerfield, Ikea, and H&M, among others. So Ikea is currently using slave labor in 2019, uh, and then we went through East German slave labor and Cuban labor, slave labor in the 1980s. So it's just, I mean, it's such a middle finger. It's, like, yeah, It's an interesting look at kind of how the world economy works, because you have uh, the, uh, I guess, the ruling class, um, and we're not, we're not, uh, those uh, those of us here and those of us listening, we're not the ruling class and we're not the slaves but we're, uh, in the world economy. But what you, it seems that we ultimate, what we ultimately have is like people in Western countries like us uh, are more or less working in this, uh, the service industry, essentially providing services for the ruling class. Mm-hmm. And what you have then is you have people in the uh, uh, global South uh, working as slaves, developing cheap furniture to provide the uh, some moderate living standards for the servants of the ruling class. Like it's, it's this very bizarre kind of chain of power. And so uh, like, you know, on one hand, you can say we don't have a place to complain because we're not these slaves. We have slaves making things for us, even if we're not aware of it most of the time. But it, it's it, it's just interesting, this kind of ladder of power that's that's been placed on us. So Ikea introduces a new uh, table made with Cuban slave labor called the Gusano. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, yes. Like, uh, the part of a, the service... To use your letter analogy, metaphor, mm-hmm. analogy. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, the primitive accumulation that capitalists use in the global south, and mm-hmm. also some of the north, like with Romania. Yeah. Um, yeah. On like the third world, a part of the service that um, we here in the global north, who are not part of the own, like the the bondholder class, the shareholders. Mm-hmm. Uh, is to simply turn a blind eye to all of this suffering, right? And not, I never identify with all of these other workers, mm. right? Yeah, continue right. to buy this cheap stuff that ultimately doesn't get recycled. You know, exacerbates the climate crisis and enriches these people, right? Right. One of one of the things that I found interesting, and this is a kind of it's kind of a tangent out of left field, but a lot of people these days will talk about. Um, 1984 and how it like reflects the world today but one of the things that kind of uh, that a lot of people miss about that book is that the main character Winston isn't 
at the bottom of the social ladder. He's kind of a middle management figure. Mm -hmm. And they constantly in the book refer to the proles who are the real working class. Mm -hmm. Uh, But he's the one who's under surveillance where you're supposed to identify with him and the oppression that he's uh, under. And it's, uh, it's, it's, it's interesting how that level of social control kind of really does extend, you know, from the bottom up and it is applied in different ways to different levels. And Sweden is a social democratic country that's frequently cited by, you know, Bernie Sanders. Yeah. Yeah. As being, uh, it's a minimally decent social democratic state where you have socialized medicine and, you know, free transport, certain areas, all Mm -hmm. that good stuff. And yet it still hosts Ikea, this like monster multinational company (laughs) with asking relatively few questions about anything. Mm. Yeah. Given all the questions that like, you know, the the broken crew have brought up. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And just two other things from Johan Stanabo's book. Uh, One is um, we mentioned that they were using Pakistani children to make their uh, uh, carpets in the the child's carpets (laughs) range. Uh, he says, uh, quoting from the ABC News write-up, Here, too, IKEA allegedly makes skillful use of promoted sponsorships of children's aid organizations to effectively defend its image. So they do the same thing with Greenpeace, WWF, that they do with using child labor, where they give money to these children's aid organizations, who are, of course, going to keep their fucking mouth shut about how IKEA is exacerbating the problem, because they rely on IKEA for funding and added bonus. It's all tax-deductible, so it's actually more profitable to do it this way. Right. Um, and Johann Stenebo also makes the allegation that Ingvar Komprad, up until he died, maintained a quote-unquote secret police within IKEA, which would spy on various people within the company, uh, give him, I think, weekly reports of what was going on, like what employees within the company were talking about. Because I guess Ingvar Komprad was there's a... there's a nod to with their Stasi lamp. <laughs> I think he did actually describe it as a quote-unquote Stasi. <laughs> um, but yeah, so... It, uh, Ingvar Komprad was a tax exile for numerous years uh, throughout his death, uh, until his death. I think he came back to Sweden in like 2014. But he lived outside of the company, uh, outside of the country, because he was such a miserly fuck that he didn't want to pay <laughs> taxes. And IKEA managed to get his tax bill down to something like an effective percentage of 13. percent Oh, because he came to dominate Sweden's economy so right. much that right, which. It- yeah, I mean, for a, a Swedish national, it's just like basically nothing. Yeah. Like, if you heard that about an American national, you'd be like, okay, that makes sense. But then you hear that this Swedish company has managed to get its Swedish tax bill down to such a fucking insanely low percentage <laughs> entirely through a tax deal with the Netherlands that is currently being investigated uh, for illegal behavior by the European Union. Um, but I guess uh, we, we've covered a fair bit here, um, but... Uh, Ingvar Komprad dies 2018. Uh, he has one daughter and three sons. The three sons have kind of taken over the company since his death in 2018. But, you know, it's only been a year. So we'll kind of see if they fuck it up or do anything particular. But I would say uh, if you're listening to this, it's a big topic. If there's stuff we didn't get to, we will most likely at some point do a follow-up episode on the children who have inherited his uh, massive fortune and try to learn more about them and what they're doing with it. So if there are things we miss, hit us up and we'll follow them up on a future episode. If we metaphorically forgot to secure it to the drywall. Um uh, anything we didn't get to that uh, you guys... Okay. Um, I did want to give a quick shout-out to one of our Discord users, Arona. Arona. U-U underscore Rona. Uh, uh, Rona? Yeah. Um, 
I, I wanted to give them a shout out because they gave us the suggestion to do an episode on OneCoin, the uh, scam cryptocurrency, which is currently up on the Patreon. So you can check it out and listen to it. It's a very fascinating story. They stole something like $4 billion <laughs> through crypto. But I wanted to give a shout out to our Patreon and Discord user, Arona, for suggesting the episode and just being cool. Um, if you want to check us out on Discord, just subscribe to our Patreon. We have the link to the Discord in there. And you can keep up on uh, how Andy is doing on his playthrough of uh, uh, Stardew Valley. Stardew Valley. I wanted to say Harvest Moon, but yes, you can you can no, keep it's up. No, it's the 2010s, man. It's Stardew Valley. <laughs> All right. Uh, thanks for listening. Check us out on Patreon. We'll be back next week. Bye. Bye.